the Bible. So I hope you've been enjoying it. I hope you have found it helpful so far. And so hopefully everyone has the handout. Again, if you don't, they're on the music stands in the back, and that'll help follow along as we work through a number of different scriptures tonight. Um, but just kind of a big picture of where we've been so far. Two weeks ago, because I know a lot's happened over the last three weeks, two weeks ago we saw what the Bible was, that it was authoritative because it was from God. We saw how it was inspired, that it had no errors, so we say it's an errant. We saw how it was sufficient for all we need, that it was clear that you don't have to have a seminary degree to understand it, that anyone can, can study the Bible with the help of the Holy Spirit, which we'll talk about tonight and understand it. And we talked about we believe it because it's a reliable collection of historic documents written down by eyewitnesses in a lifetime of other eyewitnesses, and it reports to us supernatural events that fulfill specific prophecies, and ultimately we believe it because it claims to be divine, not human origin. And we talked about two weeks ago why it's so important to know how to understand the Bible, because it affects our worship. If we worship God in spirit and in truth, then we need to understand what the Bible says. We also mentioned over the last two weeks that everyone interprets the Bible. Everyone does theology. Everyone does interpretation. Just a question of whether or not we're doing it faithfully, whether or not we're doing it correctly. And then last week we start off with some things we should not do that are temptations when we go to the Bible. If you remember from last week, we talked about the self-centered approach of only looking at things I like in the Bible, or only teaching on things that I like, or even asking, well, what does this mean to you? What does it mean to you? And why we avoid that approach to Scripture. We talked about the pragmatic approach we should avoid to Scripture, where we treat the Bible as nothing more than a self-help book, where all I do is, oh, I have a problem, where's the verse to fix this? And we also talked about we do that when we moralize stories and make application to us that really wasn't intended. We talked about the danger of the emotional approach, you know, that, well, I know it says that, but surely I feel God doesn't require that. Or, I know God says he forgives me, but I just can't believe that. So the emotional approach where we sit in judgment on Scripture so the other way around. We talked about the mystical approach to it. This is a danger. We just kind of hold it up and say, oh, God, show me something. This is my verse here. And the danger of that, God can do what God wants to do, but God calls us to study his word in its totality. And the problem with all those we said last week was it makes the Bible about us, not about God. And we kind of, our latter time last week, we talked about what we should do. And what we said we should do is let the text convey the meaning, that there's a message in the text. We called it authorial intent. What did the author mean to say? And we did that. We talked last week about three things, to read the context. And you solve a lot of problems interpreting Scripture if you read the context. We talked about asking questions of the text. You know, what is, you know, what, you know as far as like, you know, who wrote this and what was the audience and what was going on at the time? What does this word mean and what's the connection to the previous verses? And we said, ultimately, let Scripture interpret Scripture. If you're not sure, the best commentary of the Bible is, the Bible itself. And so that brings us to tonight, and we're going to continue kind of part two of what we should do. And you'll see there on the top of your handout, we should approach the Bible depending on the Holy Spirit in prayer and in community. So we're going to kind of focus the beginning of our time on those three things of what we should do. Again, big pictures, we try to let the text determine the meaning, the text convey the meaning to us. So we try to understand what the author's intent was. We're going to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit, the role of prayer. And it's talking about the issue of cultural context. This. So let's start with the first thing of what we should do in approaching the Bible. We should approach the Bible in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And friends, this is so foundational for us. But first of all, before that, who is the Holy Spirit? I mean, you guys have been around Gateway for a while. You've heard good teaching on that over the past years. But who is the Holy Spirit? Just You've heard me say before, the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he. He, the Holy Spirit. He is... The, the third person of the Godhead. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are fully God. The Holy Spirit is sent by the Father in the Son into the world. The Holy Spirit indwells all followers of Christ. There's so much we can say about his ministry and his role. But tonight we're going to focus in on his role in the Word of God and how he helps us understand it. There's many ways to describe the Holy Spirit. One of my favorite is from John 15:26, where he's called the Helper. 
comes from the Greek word, the paraclete, as we would say sometimes. So what did the Holy Spirit do? What did he, the Holy Spirit, do in relation to Scripture? The first thing you see on your handout, the Holy Spirit inspired the biblical authors. The Holy Spirit inspired the biblical authors. Look at John 15 there on your handout. But when the Helper, that means the Holy Spirit, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So how is it that the apostles and how is it the biblical authors can remember what Jesus said? He, the Holy Spirit, reminded them. He, the Holy Spirit, showed them what to write and what needed to be recorded in the pages of Holy Scripture. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 1 again. I mentioned this two weeks ago. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God. as they were carried along by who? The Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit inspired the text, but he not only had a role in, writing the t- in, in the writing of the text, he has a role in us understanding the text. And this is very important as we seek to best understand the Scriptures. Because having your notes there, the Holy Spirit illuminates the text to us. To illuminate, to make something clear by light. And so think about this from just a human standpoint of illumination. Sunday we had all these storms come through. When I got home to Opelika, you were still commuting just for a few more days, Lord willing. But we got, got home to Opelika and the power was out. It was dark. A tornado had gone not too far from our house and the power was out in the area. And so we get, we get home and it's dark. And as it gets to be nighttime and the sun completely sets... It's dark. Well, we're packing our house to move this next week. And so there's like boxes on the floor and there's toys everywhere. So it's, like a, it's like a disaster. And also like a tornado came through our house. You know, stuff everywhere. Well, it's kind of dangerous in the dark to walk through our house right now. Because, again, there's toys on the floor. There's, there's cardboard boxes. There's, I mean, stuff everywhere as so we're getting a whole house packed up. And it was dangerous. I, I was definitely am I stepping on cardboard, a toy, or a kid? Like, what, what is on the floor right here? You know, I don't know. So I found a little flashlight turn on. All of a sudden, that little light didn't take much Cast out the darkness. We talked about this from John just a few weeks ago. And the illumination, that little bit of light, let me see with clarity. Oh, that's a piece of cardboard. I can step on that. Oh, that's my kid. I better not step there. You know, the, the light let me see. It illuminated. It helped me understand what was going on around me so that I could see clearly. And that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. Even with familiar passages of the Bible that we may know well, the Holy Spirit still illuminates it so that we really understand it. When I say he illuminates that he brings understanding and conviction both. Understanding being the knowledge of what the message is, what it means. And conviction here, you know, obviously the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, but I'm thinking of conviction in terms of this is true. Like when you as a follower of Christ go to the Word of God and you read this, and you go, I know for certainty, though I may not in my finite brain know how to explain this, I know it's true. That conviction comes from the work of he, the Holy Spirit, in your life. You see that in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the role of the Spirit illuminating. He says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Friends, we cannot understand what God wants us to know in our own strength. We need He, the Holy Spirit to illuminate the text for us, to open our eyes to see what there is for us. Now, with that, there is a word of warning here for us. And that is, relying on the Holy Spirit is not an excuse for laziness. It's not I'm looking at text going, you know, I don't really understand this. Oh, my commentary's across the room. Or my Bible's across the room. Okay, I don't feel like anymore. Okay, Holy Spirit, just show me I don't want to study this one anymore. That this is, the, the Holy Spirit illuminated text is not a call to laziness. God still calls us to study and to dig in and to really look at the text and to, and to read on it and study commentaries. But ultimately, our confidence is in the Holy Spirit illuminating it for us. In that, in light of that need for the Holy Spirit to illuminate the text for us, that leads us to the second thing of how we approach the Bible tonight, 
And as we approach the Bible in prayer, we approach the Bible in prayer, if we understand our need for illumination of the text, that will drive us to pray when we read the Bible. Why? Well, well, what is prayer? Well, obviously it's talking to God, but there's a quote I put on your handout from a guy named Randy Sprinkle. He used to be with the International Mission Board. He was a prayer coordinator probably 10 years ago with the International Mission Board. And he said this quote. He said, prayer is an unbroken confession of our utter dependence upon God. Prayerlessness, not praying, is an unspoken testimony of our dependence upon our own flesh. And so based on that quote, what he's saying is that if we're not praying, it's because we don't think we need God's help. We think we've got to figure it out on our own. But when we're praying, we're confessing, God, I, I need you, whether it's a prayer for a medical situation or a prayer for safety or a prayer for illumination of text, whatever. It's, it's, a, it's a confession of dependence upon the Lord. And friends, if we understand that we can't fully understand the Bible apart from the role of the Holy Spirit in our life, that should drive us to approach the Word of God in prayer. What are some things you can pray for as you approach the Bible? I've given you four right there. And so what you can pray for is you can pray for the Holy Spirit to open our hearts to long for his word. Open our hearts. Friends, if we won't even desire the word of God apart from the Holy Spirit's work. We are that dependent upon God and that needy that we need God to even give us the desire to do this. Desire for the word of God, desire for anything of God is his grace gift. I had a friend in ministry, and he used to tell me before, he said, Grady, I just, my longings for the Lord aren't what they need to be. And sometimes when I pray, my desire is so weak. My prayer is, God, make me willing to be made willing to want you. Like, you know, we're so dependent upon the grace of God. Sometimes we just have to pray, God, make me willing to even be made willing to want you right now or to desire your word or to pray right now. But it's, we ask God for that. We ask the Spirit of God who indwells us to open our hearts that we long to know the word of God. Secondly, you can pray for the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to really see what it says. Friends, we can look at a text over and over and over and miss things in it. And so we go to Scripture saying, Spirit of God, show me what is in this text. Show me what's there. Friends, I'll never forget, this is going back many years ago, more than a decade ago, I spent a summer in Nairobi, Kenya with the International Mission Board. It was a great ten weeks or so there in Kenya. Well, that summer I was reading devotionally through Philippians. And I'd read through the book. I'd read through it again. I'd read through it several times. And every time I get in, I felt like the Spirit of God was saying to me, you're missing something. So I go back and read it again. I'm like, I, I, I'm getting this book, Lord. What am I missing here? Can I go on something else? I've, got, I've been in Philippians for weeks now. Can I go somewhere else? And I kept sensing that I was missing something from the Lord. And it hit me after a few weeks. I, I was going through one day and I was reading Philippians 4, a text I would just pass over so quick because we've read it so many times. Do not be anxious about anything, but everything by prayer and supplication. And the next phrase just arrested me. It's like I got hit with it. It said, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. I'd read that text for years and years, and I somehow missed the with thanksgiving. I somehow thought, okay, we don't have to be anxious because we can pray about it, and God's peace will be there with us. But the promise is, make your request with thanksgiving. That's one of the conditions of the promise. And I had missed that. I read that book for weeks and weeks and weeks, and I somehow missed those two words. And so we go to the Word of God, and we say, Spirit of God, open my eyes to really see what's here. The third thing you can pray for is for the Spirit of God to open our minds to understand what it means, I just, we just read that 1 Corinthians 2 text that's on your handout right above this section. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We need the Holy Spirit to give us the spiritual discernment to understand the Word of God. But lastly, we can pray as we go to the Word of God. Spirit of God, open our wills so that we want to obey. Friends, we cannot realistically expect God to show us things if we've already made up in our mind we're not going to obey them. If we've already decided we're not going to walk in obedience with him as the Lord. 
And that kind of leads us to a serious reminder that sin affects our whole being. Sin affects our thought processes. Sin affects our feelings. Sin affects our body. So I warned in the scripture that the heart is deceitful above all things. Sin affects us. And so we need to pray desperately for help. If you want a model for prayer of what it looks like to go to the scripture with prayer and view Psalm 119 here that I've put before you. There's 40 verses, so I'm not going to read them all. I know I can talk fast and cover a lot, but we're not going to read all 40 tonight. I would encourage you when you get home tonight, read this. Let this be part of your, even before you go to sleep, thinking about the Lord and letting the word dwell richly in you. But I, all four things we've talked about I see in this text as far as a longing for it. So look, we can pray for the Holy Spirit to open our hearts to long for it. Just look at, let's just glance at a few verses. Verse 10. The second paragraph, verse 10. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Look at verse 14, same paragraph. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. Verse 16, same paragraph. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Verse 20, down next paragraph. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Verse 35, down towards the bottom there. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. I mean, if you notice, every few verses, there is an expression of desire for the Word of God. It's a great place to start in our prayers, because from the heart, everything else flows. You know, even when we talked Sunday morning about John the Baptist, we started with his attitudes, because his words and his actions all flowed from that. Our heart affections for the Word is going to affect everything else. We said we could also pray for eyes to see what the Word means. Look at verse 12, second paragraph, in the middle of it. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. This longing to be taught what it is. Verse 18 in the next paragraph. Open my eyes that I may behold wonders things out of your law. Open my eyes, God. I want to see what it is. Open my eyes to them. We said we could also pray. The third thing was opening our minds to understand. So look at verse 27. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. We look at verse 34 in the last paragraph. Give me understanding that I might keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. But we said we could not only pray for hearts to long, for eyes to see, minds to understand, but we said we could pray for the Holy Spirit to give us a will, a desire to obey it as well. And you see this all throughout this text. So back, first paragraph, verse 5. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Verse 10 in the next paragraph. With my whole heart I seek you, let me not wander from your commandments. Look at the next verse, verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 17, down in the next paragraph. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. And verse 33, the very last paragraph. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. So in one psalm here, you have all four of these things you can pray for. To pray for hearts to long, for eyes to see what it means, minds to understand, and a will to obey. And friends, I can't help but wonder, what would happen in my life, and my family, in your life, and your family, and us as a church family, and even this community, if all the believers in Montgomery approach the Word of God every day with this prayer. What would happen if we really, in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, look to the Word of God every day with, God, I want to long for this. God, I want to see it. I want to understand it. God, I want to obey it. Help, help, help. This goes back to what, the first sermon of January when we were looking at ask, seek, and knock. You know, we talked about that wasn't a promise just for, you know, that we used often. You, know, you want a new job? Well, ask, seek, and knock. Well, that's not what it's about. This is the very thing that ask, seek, and knock is about. Remember, if you compare the Matthew account to Luke account, you know, if the earthly father knows how to give good, good, good gifts to his kids, how much more does your heavenly father know how to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So, friends, when we approach the word of God, we ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking, asking the Holy Spirit to do these things in our hearts and in our lives.
Well, there's one more thing I want us to see in terms of how we approach the Bible. Turn the page as we approach the Bible in community. Not just alone, but in community. And this is harder for us because we as Americans, if you think of a core value of our culture, we are very, very, very individualistic. More so than most cultures in the world are. It's about the individual. It's the, you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You, know, you don't need anybody else. Go out on your own. We're a very rugged, individualistic culture. But that doesn't help us when it comes to the Word of God. Because in the Bible, there's not a lot about the individual. The Bible is the story of God creating a people for himself. And that, friends, we know we need community when we're in the midst of trials. Like the diagnosis that Carmen just got, they're going to need community to come alongside them. When we're in the trial, we know we need community. There's days that we're lonely and we're like, oh, I need fellowship. We know we need community. But friends, we need community just as much to understand the Word of God as we do needing community in the trial or when we need fellowship. We need the community to help inform our understanding of the Word of God. And so we're all learners. We're all on a journey. None of us are perfect in interpreting the Bible. Even me as your pastor, I'm far from perfect interpreting the Bible. I need you guys to speak to truth to me. I need to speak truth to you guys. It's a two-way street. We all need one another as we seek to understand the Scriptures. We need to understand and study the Scriptures in community. Well, let, let me stretch us a bit and ask a question and make us a bit uncomfortable. Where in the Bible do you find the concept of the personal quiet time? Jesus did model it, and sometimes, yes. But if you think of also prescriptive versus descriptive commands, most of the ones we look to for the me getting alone with God ends up being descriptive, not prescriptive. Again, I'm not saying quiet times are bad. We all need to be making it a priority to be in the Word of God. But my concern is sometimes when we stress quiet times, we stress into the exclusion of community discussion of the Word of God as well. And so both hands, look at just several scriptures here related to what is prescriptive, about how we approach the Bible. Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them. Here's the talking about You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Colossians 3, 15 and 16. I've been thinking about this in the last few weeks. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful, let's consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So my point in this is, the prescriptive commands of the Bible relate to the Word of God is that we need to be meditating on it day and night. So, yes, we need to be individually studying the Bible. But the prescriptive commands of the Bible are much more about how we're talking about the Word of God together in community. And so if all we're doing is having my quiet time between me and God in the morning, and that's the extent of my engagement in the Word of God, I'm missing out on one of the prescriptive commands of God's grace of how I'm to be growing and understanding the Word of God. Friends, marriages would be a lot better. Spouses would read the Word of God together and talk about it together 
parent-kid relationships would be a lot better if we would read the Bible together as a family and talk about it together as a family. College students, you and your roommates' relationships would be even better if you and your roommates would read the Bible and talk about it together. Like, you know, my point is that we need to be saturating our life with the Word of God, but we cannot neglect, if we think about quiet times, we cannot neglect the noisy time that goes with it. And that's the opening our mouth to talk about it in community one with another. Because when we read the Word of God together, when we talk about the Word of God together, we gain insights. I mean, how many times have we been sitting in a group and someone's like, as I'm reading this, you know, I, I realize this, and you're like, oh, I missed that also. You know, when we learn insights from one another, it guards us from error. When we talk about a text like, hey, I'm really having trouble understanding this, you know, have you studied this? And we have conversations that helps guard us from going down the wrong path of things. But even furthermore, it helps us apply the teaching. When someone's like, hey, I've been reading this verse and the Spirit of God is convicting me of this and I need to grow in this. And you're going, man, I do also. Well, I'll pray for you, pray for me. And then a few days later, you're like, hey, how are you doing with that area God showed you? And how are you doing? There's, there's accountability you don't have when it's just you alone with the Lord on that one. And so it helps us live out the teaching. And so I just encourage you as you approach the Bible, we do it in dependence on the Holy Spirit, which is manifest in prayer. But we do that in the context of with one another and community, husbands and wives, parents and kids, friend groups, small groups, that we study the Bible together in the context of community. Well, there's one other thing I want us to talk about tonight, and that is kind of shifting gears a little bit of how do we approach the Bible we saw we approach the Bible in context. We saw we approach the Bible in looking at letting Scripture interpret Scripture. We saw we approach the Bible now with the Spirit of God, with prayer, with community. But I want to now talk about the role of cultural context. We approach the Bible seeking to understand the cultural context. I know it's kind of shifting gears, but this one's important for how we approach Scripture. We kind of finish up some foundational things tonight. Which, by the way, in two weeks when we get back together, we're going to start looking at specific genres of Scripture and how you interpret specific genres. So two weeks, we'll start with historical narrative, and what do we do with historical narrative in the Bible. So for, first of all, understanding cultural context. What is culture? Culture is the beliefs, the behaviors, and the shared values of a group of people. The beliefs, the behaviors, and the shared values of a group of people. Now, culture is something that is almost inherent and innate to the culture. People often can't even articulate what the culture fully is, you're not, it is learned, but it's not like intentional learning. Someone doesn't sit down and be like, in our culture, you need to be an individual who tries hard on your own. If you don't have less than that, we just kind of pick that up in the culture. It's just kind of learn things, but it's not necessarily even thought through. The culture kind of defines the norms for our life of how people relate and things. I mean, if you want to do a fun experiment next time you're on an elevator, instead of facing, instead of facing the door, turn me back to the door and talk to everyone. You know, there's a cultural norm in our culture that when you go to the elevator, you all stand quietly. You don't get on the elevator and turn with your back door and be like, hey, everybody, have you ever thought about dying and dropping it? You're, there's cultural norms that tell you don't do that. Well, no one teaches you that. You just, in the culture, you just learn that you don't do that. So cultural things are things that are just kind of picked up. If you want a, a term we use more often in the church, world, we, culture is really a worldview. A worldview is how do you understand reality? And we all have worldviews, and they differ between different cultures. What we need to understand is the Bible was written in a specific culture and to a specific culture, and the cultures we find ourselves is very, very different than the culture of the biblical times and the culture that is written to, and that can create misunderstandings and confusion. All these cultural differences we know in real life present challenges. So if some of you guys travel overseas with your work or have been overseas, well, in different cultures, different things are offensive in different places. When I went to Thailand several years ago, 
I've, I've sat, it, by the way, in Thailand, the worst offense you can do to anyone, like the most egregious offense, is you show the bottom of your foot. If you show the bottom of your foot, it is like the worse than any curse word we could use here, worse than the middle finger. Like, it is awful in Thailand. So I get to Thailand. I've been on a plane for 20 hours. I'm exhausted. I finally collapse in the hotel lobby. It's like, oh, this is great. And I sit down like I do here. I cross my leg like this. I'm pointing my foot right at the hotel check-in clerks, and I'm, t- and I'm, stiff, so I'm kind of stretching my foot, wiggling a little bit. And I look over, and they're all like, <gasps> and I'm like, sorry, American, sorry, sorry. You know, like, that, that, that's cultural. We kind of look, and like, that's so silly. Why is the bottom of your foot so offensive? Well, why is the middle finger so offensive? It's just a finger. Like, you know, cultures have things that are so different. So you can give the middle finger to someone in Thailand. They'll probably wave the middle finger back thinking you're being nice. You know, it's just a cultural difference. And it's like, you know, we think theirs is silly. They think ours is silly. But culture is so inherent to the life of the culture, we don't think about it. But that also happens here. Working with internationals in Auburn all these years, my friends from, from some of the other countries in the world were always notoriously late. Well, in our culture, time is of the essence. We've been taught basically that timeliness is like cleanliness next to godliness, right? You know, that's like ingrained in our culture here. You know, I've been taught, you know, early on in life, I figured out that to be early is to be on time, to be on time is to be late, to be late is to be dead. Like, you know, somehow no one taught me that. I just kind of picked up on that in the culture. Well, my international friends didn't share that view. Hey, I'll meet you at Chick-fil-A at 11 o'clock and 11.45 they come rolling in. I'm like, I have been here for 45 minutes. I've got my watch, my hand held. Where have you been? And they're like, oh, I don't have a watch. You know, I'm like, well, go buy one at Walmart, you know. There's a cultural difference on that. And we look at that, and we can even try to, like, proof text that. Well, you know the Bible says, do everything unto the Lord. You need to go get you a watch. And we'll try to proof text it. You know, do to others what you want them to do to you. Or we'll even proof text, let your yes be yes. You said you'd be here at 11. Where are you? You know, we can try to proof text it, but we're reading the Bible through a cultural lens. There's no verse in the Bible that says that you have to be on time. Because in the reality is time is a cultural construct as far as timeliness. In a lot of cultures, they're relational cultures, not time-driven cultures. There's parts of the world you go to where no one wears a watch. There's no clocks on the wall. No one has even, even any clue what time of day it is. And that's not a right or wrong. That's just different. It's a culture. And, in those, and we can look at those and be like, again, you're supposed to let your yes be yes. They need to get clocks in their city. You know? But if you look at the scriptures, and a lot of my international friends, if they were late coming... When I finally started talking to them, they were late because on the way there, they saw a friend sitting along the sidewalk who was discouraged. They stopped to talk to him for a few minutes to try to encourage him. And they're leaving their house that morning, and their wife is really just overwhelmed with stuff. And so they decided to stay home a little bit longer just to encourage us, so they left on a good note. I'm like, well, that sounds like biblical shepherding or caring for people in need. And all of a sudden now, I've realized that my social construct, my cultural construct of timeliness, I was letting that trump my understanding of the Bible of caring for the poor and shepherding your family and all these things because I'm so driven to do things. I mean... How many times in our culture have we seen a person on the side of the road or, or had a friend in need? Sorry, I've got to get to my meeting right now. I'll be late if I don't go now. And, just, and we pass over that. Because we've taken our cultural value of timeless and, and elevated above very clear prescriptive texts in the Bible about caring for those in need. So my point is, if we're not careful, we can do that to the Bible, what we do in terms of uh, interacting with people from other cultures here. So again, the Bible is written in a specific culture, to a specific culture, but we read it in a very, very different culture. Therefore, as your handout says, we need to first seek to understand the culture at the time of the Bible. We need to be aware of our own cultural bias. It's like a lens that we look through. If you've ever taken like a piece of blue cellophane and held it up to your face and looked, the world looks different. The reality is we live in a culture where timeliness is that piece of cellophane we're looking at on the Bible. Individualism is that cellophane. It colors everything we see, and we don't realize it, but our culture shapes how we interpret, how we understand the Bible. We could spend 
weeks on this, but let me just for the sake of time, I give us two examples. One is hospitality. Well, in the South here we have what we call Southern hospitality. It's really more entertainment. You know, the house has to look right. Everything has to be in place. You know, the house has to look good. But there's a thing in the Bible called biblical hospitality, and that's really foreign to a lot of American culture. Biblical hospitality is, is opening our homes to people. You know, most of us see our homes as a castle, a place to retreat to. That's, that's not biblical. That's just a cultural thing. You know, we've been taught that to the man, the home is his castle, and he's a place to retreat to to be safe. Well, that's cultural, not necessarily biblical. So we, look at, we go to Acts, and we look at the people meeting in their homes every day, and we're going, that sounds exhausting. <laughs> I have to have a church in my home every day. Yeah. Or we look at people selling all their possessions and bringing it together collectively to the church, and we're just kind of passing over that going, that doesn't seem relevant to me because it, we, don't, we don't get it. We have a lens to which we look at it, and that just doesn't make sense to us on that. Let me give you one more. Now, it's not on your handout, but just listen. This Romans chapter 10 is a text that we point people to a good bit in terms of like holiness and things. Because um, in, in Romans chapter 10, let me find it here. Actually, starting at Romans 10. Romans 12. I told you the wrong thing. Romans 12, sorry. Romans 12, we, we often quote this for holiness. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed. And so we'll point people to this in, in terms of struggles with sin. Look, you, God says you can be transformed. You know, this is your spiritual worship to be holy. And in the verses that follow, as Paul's writing Romans, he shows us what holiness looks like. The problem is we're, we're, we're prone to want to do certain things in here. Be constant in prayer. Okay, I'm going to work on that. But the very next verse in verse 14 says, Contribute to the needs of saints and seek to show hospitality. Again, in our culture, we can kind of pass over that. But biblically, part of our sanctification is growing in hospitality. When was the last time we heard sermons and lessons taught on, on using our home for hospitality? We don't hear that much. We hear a lot more on holiness. But hospitality is part of holiness. But in our culture, in our very privatized lives of our world, where we pull in our garage and then close the door behind us so we don't have to talk to the neighbor and there's big privacy fences in our backyard, you know, we live in a world where we're isolated from one another. And this idea of shared life in the Bible kind of makes us a little bit uncomfortable in our American culture. So we just kind of quickly pass over those texts and go back to, again, self-centered approach of the Bible, reading those things that fits our culture that we feel comfortable with. Again, we can talk more on that. But another example of this is individual versus group identity, individual versus group identity. This one is hard for us, again, because we're a very individualistic culture. The Bible is a very group-oriented culture in all ways on this. And so there's a danger for us, again, like that lens to look at how to read the Bible. And like we talked about translations two weeks ago, this doesn't help us. English has one you. If the Greek word is singular or the Greek word used plural, it doesn't matter. We just get it as a you. So take, for example, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. I think I mentioned this a few weeks back. But you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, and I would read this, and I'd be like, wow, look at what God's done for me. This is cool. I'm holy. I'm part of a royal priesthood. But I was reading the you as about me, because I'm reading through that cultural lens where we look at everything in terms of individual in the Greek, that is about you, plural. I'm not a holy nation unto myself. I'm not a priest, but collectively the body of Christ, we are a holy nation. Collectively the body of Christ, we are a royal priesthood. Collectively we are people for God's own possession. My translation does not say y'all, but that would, be a, that would be a good one to add to that because it, it does differentiate for us that. But yeah, so mine does not include the word y'all, but that would be a good translation of that text because you all, y'all are a holy nation. Y'all are a royal priesthood. Y'all are a people for his own possession. But again, we look at that text and apply it to me when I should have been looking at the text and applying it to us 
together because my cultural individualism blinded me to what the text was all about. So you get the same thing in Ephesians 2, talking about you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's us together. That's the Spirit of God working in our midst that we're seeing in all of this. And for this even spills over to how we talk, not just how we read Scripture. In our culture, we so stress, have you decided to follow Jesus yet? It doesn't matter what your parents think. doesn't matter what your friends think. Have you decided? Well, then we get to Acts 16, and the whole family decides to follow Jesus. What do you do with that? Wait, wait. The whole family kind of runs this wrong. The whole family can't decide. It has to be an individual choice. Well, why? Because it's our cultural reading into the scriptures on that. When in reality, there in much of world history, even this time, there were group decisions for Christ. We talk to mission strategists around the world, and people make decisions in groups to come to Christ. A missionary goes into a village in Papua New Guinea. They do chronological Bible story, and they share the gospel, share the gospel. And finally, they say, what are you guys going to do with this Jesus? Like we said in the Gospel of John, it demands a response. They say, we'll go talk about it as a community and come back to you. The community talks, and they, for a while they come back, they say, we all, we all are Christians now. Well, our American culture is like, no. They each have to make a decision. But in that culture, no, the idea of pulling the individual out is offensive. They, they decide as a group what to do, and that group now follows Jesus. Well, I teach in a, in a class called Perspectives on the World Christian Movement, and I teach missions history. They, they bring me into these classes because I can do 2,000 years of missions history in two hours, so you all know I talk fast, so I can cover that for them. But as I go through that, we talk about some of the trends out of recent missions development, and we talk about the role of people movements where groups come to faith in Christ together. And when I get pushback from the people in these missions classes, it's always about this topic. Grady, how can groups come to faith in Christ? It's an individual decision. There's going to be false decisions if the whole group decides. Marcel's always, how many times do you see rebaptisms here? There's false decisions when it's an individual. But it's our culture we kind of impose. They can't do it that way overseas. Why? Not because it's a biblical basis, because we're reading our individual culture into that. But friends, it also spills over into our music as well. There's a song that I love the song on the radio. It's, Your love never fails. It never runs out on me, if y'all are familiar with this song. But there's a line in the chorus they repeat over You make all things work together for my good. You make all things work together for my good. They're quoting Romans 8.28, but they've modified it. And I don't even know if they even fully understand that they've modified what the, Rome, what the Bible says. Does Romans 8.28 say you work all things together for my good? Romans 8.28 simply says, and we know that, those, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. The word my is not in there. What's the good? It's not always promised that, that my good is going to be best. Perhaps God allows a trial in my life for the good of the church. What if God allows a trial in my life so that I can respond in Christ-like graciousness so my neighbor doesn't know Christ comes to faith in Christ? What if the good that God is doing in the trial is not centered on me and my self-advancement and my self-promotion, but is centered on what God is going to do for his kingdom? And so taking a text that's about God working good in trials for his glory and for our joy in the midst of that, but even in our songs we sing all things together for my good, not that they're trying to do anything intentionally wrong, but just that we're so blinded by our culture when we hear even Romans 8.28, we instantaneously turn it right back to being about me. And so, as we summarize this, just I want us to remember that there is a specific culture in the Bible, and we need to ask questions of text. We need to be students of the Word of God to seek to understand it. And we need to seek to understand our own culture as well, our own cultural biases, our own cultural lenses. So when we look at the text, we can really say, Holy Spirit, show me what this says here, and give me grace to not read in this text what I want to see because of my own upbringing in the culture 
in which I find myself. So turn the page. I want to try to bring some things together for you with a real-life application here in our last few minutes before we break up into our groups for discussion here. And so what I want to do is look at a verse, but we're going to practice doing the following. We're going to practice understanding the context, asking questions of the text, and understanding the cultural context and cultural biases we have with it, okay? It's a text that we've all quoted. We probably have it hanging on our wall somewhere. It's a text we probably have on a pen or a plaque or someone's given to us, right? Y'all know it, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a hope and a future. This is ESV. I think most of us have learned it NIV. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you. The reason we print the NIV and not the ESV on pens is because prosper sounds better to our culture, just by the way. That's why that translation gets used more on the printing of stuff because that fits more in our culture. But let's look at some questions about this text because this is a text that would help us by answering the questions we've talked about. So the first thing is, what is the Western cultural lens through which we tend to see this text? Individualism. Yeah, I just heard it back there. Individualism. When we look at this text, the first thing we see is God says, I know the plans I have for you. And who are we thinking the you is? Me. I'm like, man, this sounds great. God's talking to me right here. I know that he knows the plans he has for me. Plans to prosper me. Plans to give me a future and a hope. We've made it about us individually. But the second question, who is the you in this text? The nation of Israel. This is a specific thing to the nation of Israel. If you go, and I'll read it for you, but in the beginning of Jeremiah 29, here's how this chapter begins. Because, again, this is context. This is how we solve a lot of interpretation problems with context. Chapter 29, verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people who Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So there's our context. Who is the you here? It is the people who have been taken into exiles. It is the Jewish exiles. So if we want to ask a question in the text, number three, what was happening in their lives when this was written to them? They've been taken into exile. Their city has been destroyed. This is not a happy time in their life. Their city has been ransacked. They have been captured. They're basically almost like slaves being drug off to another place, and they are now exiles, so their city destroyed. It could be easy, easy for them to despair. And so the, what we typically go to in Jeremiah 29, 11 was addressed to them in that situation. Well, I didn't give you – there's some more questions we should ask for the text I didn't put here, so just kind of follow along more questions of the text. But notice who else is in view here besides just God wanting to to bless his people who are in exile. If you look down in verse number uh, 7 here, there's another group in view. Verse 7, God tells them, but seek the welfare of the city. What city? This is the city of the foreigners who captured them. Wait, these are the enemies now in view. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So the you here is also in view of these, these pagan non-believers who capture them and destroy their city. That's part of the you in view of all this. And what are the plans God has for his people discouraged in exile? Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise to you and bring you back to this place. So it's not just whatever they dream the plans to be for God to prosper. The plan is, the meaning of this is, they're going to return to their city. They're going to return to their land in that. But don't miss this. How quickly will the promise come true? Because, again, think of the cultural lens. This is the next question. We are in a microwave culture. Everything has to be here and now. We need our email on our phone. You know, that's what second week is pastor. I, I changed our email systems. We get email on our phone so we can get a hold of it right away. We're, we're a microwave instantaneous culture. We don't want to wait for anything. And when, we, and when we try to think through this particular verse written to Israel but apply it to us, plans for God to prosper us, we tend to apply it that's pretty quick. 
know, we give this to people when they're graduating high school and into college. God's going to prosper you as you go to college. That's our microwave culture. But the timetable of this, verse 10, is very clear. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my promise. He's saying, I'm going to do this, but guess what? It's going to be 70 years from now. Some of you are going to be dead before I do this. Some of you are going to be really old when I do this. But I am going to have plans for your welfare. But guess what? It's coming in 70 years. Because it's coming in 70 years, look at verses 5 and 6. He says, therefore, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. He's saying, basically, you're going to be stuck there for a while in exile. So go ahead and settle down there for a little while. Use the southern word, hunker down for a while. In 70 years, this is going to happen. But again, we read it with our kind of instantaneous microwave cultural lens to make it about quick promise of God's prosperity for this. So questions 5 and 6 then. What does this text mean? For instance, this text does not mean that you're going to have great success from God when you go to college and get this from your grandmother on a plaque when you go off to college. You know, that's not what this text means. This text means that even though God's people are suffering in exile, God remembers them. God's people are being taken care of them through their exile. And God's even going to bless the people who are enslaving them so that they can look forward to their future deliverance. That, they're, that even though it's many decades away, they can be assured that God has not forgotten them. That's what the text means. Well, obviously texts have meaning, but texts also have applications. So how do we apply Jeremiah 29, 11 to us? Again, is this a passage to the individual or a passage to the people? It's a passage to the people. Who are God's people today? The church, plural, us together. And so if we want to apply Jeremiah 29, 11, it's not a promise to me or to my friend going off to school. It's a promise to the church today. Or as to the application to the church today, because the church is aliens and strangers. The people in, in Israel's time were exiles, and the Bible describes in First Peter 2 as being aliens and strangers, exiles in our land. And so what's the application to us today when all looks hopeless for the kingdom to advance? When it seems like the culture is encroaching on the church and there's no hope for the church to really grow, we remember that the gates of hell shall not prevail against God's church. And so the promise of Jeremiah 29 and 11 is not that I'm going to get a lot of prosperous work from the Lord in the next year. The promise is says God's church, if you want to apply it to the church today, is going to advance. The meaning is tied to the people of Israel at this point or in history. But the application is to the church today, the gates of hell will not prevail and the kingdom will advance. And we can save ourselves a lot of misapplication of it if we look at the, just read the context of the first ten verses, ask questions of the text, and understand the culture and what was going on and how our cultural lens of a microwave culture and individual culture kind of shapes our thinking on that. Well, that leads us to some discussion questions for our last 25 minutes or so tonight. And so the guys who led discussion last week, can you stand up for me? Are, y'all, are some of y'all here? So CJ has slipped out, so I didn't get a chance to, to, to um, do that. So we got four, one or two other of you men be willing to facilitate discussion tonight. So, so Tom, can I get you to, to get a few guys around you? And so I think with, with four or five groups, and John, I think you're back there. Maybe if you, you two would jump in as well. If y'all would be groups, and y'all can sit down for a second, and we're going to get everyone kind of get around those guys and let them facilitate. But you've got six questions to think about on your handout tonight. And so just want you to think about them. The first, the first one has to do with our understanding of Scripture. How does sin affect our ability to understand the Scriptures? Second question is, what are some practical ways we can link prayer and Bible study in our lives? Third is, just share with you, how have you benefited from studying the Bible with others? Question four, what do you think would change in your ability to understand the message of the Bible if you focus more on studying it with other people than just studying alone? I'm, saying, I'm not saying don't study alone. I'm saying, but what if you added to that intentional studying it with others? 
Number five, how does our culture in this part of the U.S., South Alabama here, impact how we read the Bible? And then number six, our cultural lens affects how we understand Scripture and talk about it with others. In our culture, which values independence and self-reliance, we will hear people say, I don't know if you've heard this, I've heard this God helps those who help themselves. So in light of that cultural assertion, how do we respond biblically to it? So guys, if you'll stand up again who are going to lead groups for us, Tom, you guys, and if you all kind of scatter around the room and work through those questions in the time we have left. God bless you all.